Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. Today we're talking about variability. What causes yield variability within a field, and which factors are the most significant? My guests are... My name is Taras Lajcik. I'm a research scientist uh, in, in precision agriculture and cropping systems uh, with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in uh, Brandon at the, with the Brandon Research and Development Centre. My name is Alan Malin. I'm a retired soil scientist, formerly worked with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada at the Brandon Research and Development Centre. This is a longer than average conversation, so we're going to jump right in. Traz, what influences the variability in crop productivity across a field? Well, a myriad of factors uh, related to, um, for example, soil, uh, soil and its properties, uh, such as uh, texture, for example, and um, organic matter. Uh, water, of course, uh, of course, uh, water distribution uh, across the field and uh, across the soil profile in uh, different zones. Other factors are temperature, uh, both uh, soil temperature and ambient temperature. Finally, for example, uh, topography, um, such as um, uh, different uh, terrain attributes and major landscape um, elements and landforms like slope and aspect um, and other derivatives from that. Uh, If I was to approach the question from the perspective of my first year soil science, they had a a rule called Liebig's Law of the Minimum and in that context soil moisture would be the most important factor affecting crop yield across the field, uh, followed by nitrogen management. Now that that sounds like a very simplistic set of factors. And it is because there are an awful lot of other factors that influence soil moisture in any given part of a field or uh, productivity and nitrogen. One of the things availability one of the things that I jotted down, and that's related to this, Alan, it was in one of Taraz's presentations that he sent me to prepare for this podcast. And and included in that list was farm inputs. And I, I never really thought about that influencing variability. I thought of that as a, as a tool to manage variability. Uh, Alan, I'll just let you continue. Is Would you keep farm inputs on the list that influences field variability or is it more of a you know an action in response to field variability well it's more it's kind of a chicken and egg situation if for example a producer is applying fertilizer at recommended rates it's possible that he can build up the fertility of that soil so that the pool of available mineralizable nitrogen in the soil is going to build up over time. So that sort of masks the variability across the field in terms of nutrient availability. Alan, you mentioned Liebig's law of the, the minimum and that soil moisture is, is the key. F- the, out of all the factors, that's the, the number one. Um, d- just on that note, Taraz, for you, uh, one of your studies showed that June per- precipitation in particular 
is a major factor in in variable yield for canola. Can you expand on that? What is it about June specifically? Uh, it was uh, it was a signal uh, between the um, uh, temperature and precipitation. Uh, like for canola, the June uh, precipitation in June was uh, the most impactful factor. Um, and depending on the year, uh, it could have been followed by heat uh, units in uh, in July and and vice versa, depending on the year, if it's a dry or uh, wet year, which we can um, touch upon in more details later on. But um, it's it it just showing you how um, how depending on the, on a year, what could be driving the yield, you know, and the then the the fertilizer that we apply in the field will have a lesser uh, or a greater impact if it's um, you know if it's um, coincides with the uh, growing stage of the crop where 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 it needs nitrogen and it's there you know and where or for example where the stage of the crop is uh, where it needs uh, sufficient moisture supplies and it's there another important thing when we delineate zone and i'm kind of going into details here uh, when we delineate zone we always look at the multiple years so we create a normalized um, uh, yield map and we we also um, account for other factors in creating the, um, the the yield management zones which are then become our, our primary management zones based on the and they they're either consistently um, producing low medium um, or high yielding uh, zones in those fields um, and uh, yeah so then we based our work uh, with not not just with the one or two years of the data that we have, but ideally with the five plus years of data. So we got moisture down as number one. What would be your number two? Uh, I would say temperature, because okay. as I said, um, moisture in June or heat units in July. Uh, they were driving yield uh, in that particular um, study that uh, the AFC conducted uh, across multiple years. So to answer briefly, it, uh, it's uh, moisture followed by temperature. This does the conundrum with variable rate applications of anything or or management of zones is that if it depends on moisture and temperature, how do you manage those you don't know what how you can predict the weather in the coming year but what you can do if it's a dry year or a wet year it's essential to soil sample um, after that that year to see what kind of residual nitrogen or or or, or phosphorus in the in the particular zone that you have so you can account for that re information when you plan um when you plan for the for the like uh for the for the season um so you can account for that information because again depending if it's a dry or wet year this will affect the um status of the nutrients in the field so oh, oh, that's okay. one one aspect yeah well that that makes sense then so you're you're not necessarily predicting what's going to happen in the upcoming year 
but you mm -hmm. are you're repairing that's maybe not quite the right word but you're you're fixing the the soil nutrient variability based on what happened in the previous year so you're going in and, and topping up based on those soil tests is that is that a fair um, uh, description pre yeah pre pretty much like this this is a good start like for in the in the season and then uh like moving on later when say say like you um once you once you plan planted the crop and uh and the, the crop started emerging then you can use um uh, for example like uh crop canopy optical sensors on the equipment and measure them uh, and measure the reflectance, you know, and and like further uh, rectify the situation and to like provide more or less nitrogen uh, using the current conditions uh, right. okay. in so the field, you know. Yeah. Use soil tests to create a prescription map to fi fix uh, what happened last year after mm -hmm. whether it was too wet or too dry or just right. And then you you look at some of these real time tools to do a, a top dress to to provide any variable rate uh, yeah yeah that's that's one that's just one yeah. of the one of the options yeah right yeah. alan just before we started the podcast um you and i were chatting for a bit and you said the multi-year analysis of yield maps is what you consider based on a lot of research to be the key tool in in putting together a, a prescription map for variable rate application did i get that right yeah that's right and so what why what is it about that why why did all your research tell you that this is the best or easiest or most practical approach well considering all of these variables that we've just discussed in terms of precipitation temperature fertilizer management and soil properties the variability of soil properties um it, it very it and and topography becomes a very complex mix of variables to to analyze and to predict in a predictive model the advantage to using historical series of yield maps is that you have data which show where you consistently get high yields consistently low yields or consistently average yields and that's a invaluable source of information and to me uh, shows a producer where he's going to consistently get better fertilizer response in certain parts of the field where he's getting higher yield. One of our studies with Aaron Glenn at the Brandon Research Center showed that in those high producing zones we could get higher yields by setting higher targets than the than the field average and furthermore the nitrous oxide emissions from those high producing zones, even with those higher fertilizer rates, were lower than in the average in the low producing areas. So there's a lot of potential in applying those yield maps to fertilizer management. Thank, thanks for squeezing in that little note about the emissions. That's that's an important statement, especially in this day and age. Traz, so let's let's jump off from that and talk a bit about some of your ongoing work in a, in a couple mm -hmm. of fields, including one right there at the research station in Brandon, where you've mm -hmm. got some sent like a, a an array of of sensors 
and you're you're tracking things beyond just temperature and moisture. What what else are you tracking? Uh, moisture and temperature and EC. The it gives the the three um, readings every 15 minutes uh, the, from each sensor. We can include it as the another uh, variable or the covariate in the machine learning analysis, and that combines this with the information on fertilizer, terrain, and landscape uh, topography. Um, by and by analyzing those um, myriad of factors together, we can test for any existing interactions, and then this allows us to determine. The, the the true driving factors for crop yield and nutrient dynamics in that particular field. Um, you, now, the, if, just Therese, the, the field, you showed me the field. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not flat, but it it's not extremely hilly either. It's kind of a, a moderate topography or a moderate terrain. Are mm -hmm. you seeing, But you, and you've got six sensors in that one field at the research station there in Brandon. Mm -hmm. What kind of variability are you seeing from sensor to sensor? Would it surprise farmers how how different some of these readings are, even within the I, same yeah. field? I this 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 one side is, as I said, relatively flat, but we do see differences in soil moisture content. Uh, it's it was a bit counterintuitive on the first um, for the first um, at attempt of analysis, like. I, I expected to see the highest moisture content in the high uh, yielding zone, but it was the average yielding zone that had the high moisture, highest moisture content, followed by uh, highest yielding zone, and then the lowest moisture was as expected uh, in the lowest yielding zone. Now, that, that, Therese, just yeah. to hold you there, that that result really jumped out at me too. Mm -hmm. um, in one of your graphs, you showed those exact results. Uh, where the highest yield was from the the part of the field that had the a medium amount of moisture, mm -hmm. uh, which you said is counter counterintuitive. So why do you think the highest yield was in parts of the field that didn't have the highest moisture? Uh, it depends on the crop. Maybe the moisture was um, too high that it was like in excess um, to the to the requirements of the crop that it actually, um affected the oxygen supply to to the roots you know we don't know like i i have to it's just um that that data is only from one year you know and because we we established that site um in the midst of the covid pandemic you know um i yet have to collect all the data um and analyze it um in more consistent pattern uh i i like to have three plus and ideally five plus year of data to see any any trends you know so right. uh this this one year is certainly thought provoking you know uh but to answer the more details i'd have to look at the bunch of other factors you know yeah yeah for sure um alan my sense is that terrain, topography, soil properties, those would be big factors in variability. But are those baked in to the long-term yield results? I mean, so going back to your your message about using the yield maps, I mean, w would you say that, you know, while soil properties and 
field terrain are big factors, those will be reflected in the, the long-term yield maps? Well, uh, there's a considerable amount of variability from farm to farm and from field to field and topography type to topography type. All of those factors have to be taken into consideration and that presents a tool for analysis, but on the same, by the same token, it makes it much more complex. So this, the simple approach of using historical yield maps helps you identify these high yielding zones in the field. Just to follow up on your earlier discussion about that high yielding zone that had less precip uh, soil moisture than and some of the other zones, it may be that those areas with high production are actually using up a lot more moisture. And as a result, there's less moisture carryover from year to year. And that influences that comparison between the high production zones and the low production zones where the water isn't used. One other factor I'd like to point out is in our analysis of these topographical areas, one variable that pops up is north facing versus south facing slopes. The north facing slopes have less radiation. We can calculate that with the, with the programs that we use in the analysis of topography. And, and that seems to be popping up in some fields as a factor that's influencing yield. That, that reflects back on the t effects of temperature, the north facing slopes right. being cooler and the south facing slopes being warmer. Now, so for a crop like canola, Alan, the, the, the north facing slope would have better yields. Is that what you were finding? Well, then we get into uh, various scenarios because in a very dry year, those north facing slopes may have slightly more moisture. They may uh, because they don't dry out as quick. I want to move on to to two more things. One of them is the the climate change models and what they're telling us about future variability and productivity. And also, Traz, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and how those might might be tools to improve precision management within fields. But so, so let's start with the climate change models. Um, one of the things I pulled from, from one of your studies was that under climate change, um, soil organic carbon decreased, not a ton, a small amount, uh, and then microbial respiration uh, increased quite, in my mind, quite a large amount, you said 17%. Mm -hmm. And that was due to an increase in annual maximum and minimum temperature. So increase in temperature, uh, increased microbial respiration. What what do these models tell us about how field variability could change? For the site that we modeled uh, in northwestern Saskatchewan, the projections were showing that it's going to be um, warmer by a few uh, by uh, I can't remember the number in terms of temperature, but it was the growing season was going to be warmer and there would be uh, more precipitation. Um, and the growing season would actually be uh, longer 
I think uh, by a week or or within by two weeks, I can't remember exactly. Uh, this this affects uh, short term and long term. This affects the soil biophysical and biochemical processes that occur in the field. And I you mentioned the the microbial respiration is one of them. Uh, emissions for sure, uh, but moreover, it also affects the uh, like the the cropping rotations and the crops and the field management practices that would be best suited for that um, for for this particular scenario. And um, the the uh, the advantage of modeling uh, that we're doing, we're we're able to test uh, alternative scenarios in terms of differences in cropping rotations, differences in the fertilizer application rates and seeding dates and seeding rates um, as well to basically help farmer um, test these scenarios before even before actually implementing them in the field. Okay, and this would give the producer an idea what may work better in a in that field say 50 or 80 or 100 years from today, uh, depending on the climate projections that are being used. Um, and like they would have an idea what kind of um, changes in the field management practices that they're looking at in order to uh, maintain or improve crop yield and reduce the um, environmental impacts for, for example, losing uh, nitrogen and phosphorus from edge of field and reduce the emissions. Ellen, is there a way to use any of these models in, in near-term planning? I mean, we're not gonna make decisions today based on what's gonna happen in, in 50 years, for example. Is there is there a, a practical use for these models in today's activities? Uh, unfortunately, not for the average producer. I don't think they have access to the models that we're working with. The important factor to consider is, is, is field scale management. That is management of quarter sections or half sections by the producer. If the producer was given a, a simple app that they could look at and then see the variability and the different scenarios under different climate change scenarios, uh, that would be the optimum. And that's probably the long-term goal of this research. One of the long-term goals of this research is to provide producers with a field scale app that they can vary the different climate change scenarios and, and see what the impacts are in terms of productivity, in terms of nutrient management, in terms of environmental impact, and most importantly, in terms of economic return. If they want to take a look at the consequences of prolonged high precipitation seasons or prolonged low precipitation seasons, then they can see where they're making money in the field and where they're not making money in the field. There are programs available now like SMS that do provide economic analysis and return from the at a field scale. So a producer can tell from his historical yield maps where he's making money in a field and where he's not making money in the field. What we're discussing is the next step is determining the factors that influence those high producing and low producing areas, how they can be managed and how 
they change under various climate change scenarios. Now, the models that we've worked with are from NASA and they are constantly evolving. So it's not black and white in terms of saying, well, we're running into a extremely dry period or an extremely wet period. From my perspective, it, it's really a lot of climate variability. Before we move on to the to the uh, AI and machine learning, Alan, can you just clarify what SMS is? Uh, there may be some farmers interested in that. That's that's an ag leader project. Uh, product software product that we used in our research farmworks is the program that i'm familiar also familiar with and, and some of our collaborators used farmworks in our research program we've always uh, made it an important aspect that um like with regards to our research we're always geared toward the field scale and the individual um so to say, usefulness of this research for a, for a, for a producer. Um, for example, with regards to those climate change projections that we were talking, um, like the best we could do before was uh, we could um, simulate those climate change scenario based on a 25 kilometer grid. And now nowadays this resolution is gradually increasing. Um, so um, so now like they they have. Um, they have the computer power and the and the the possibilities to predict those changes based on the even a kilometer resolution or even a sub kilometer resolution so so in th this is very good news because this is um uh, this this would help a producer to know what to do exactly on their particular field we always try to base our research and our recommendations on specific needs of a producer given their location and their um, their field management operation details and so on. All right, artificial intelligence and machine learning. We could talk for days on this, I'm, I'm sure. But how do you see that um, helping farmers manage field variability? With with machine learning and artificial intelligence, we can train the model to basically predict the the patterns in those uh, parameters moving forward, given the location, given the uh, climate change projections uh, that will inform the producer um, into the like a specific steps in terms of the um field management operations or uh you know fertilizer inputs given the um, uh, historical information that the models were trained on uh and that's um you know ideally as alan mentioned we would like to see it as an app on on the producer phone where they can quickly locate their field uh feed in all that information the 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 weather the terrain the the field inputs the cropping uh, rotation that go in um in the app and then the on the on the behind the scene the ai and machine learning will do that work for the producer okay that's that's a long shot but it's mm -hmm. a ideal product that we are trying to build here <laughs> well while we're while we're taking long shot predictions which i think this will happen it's just a matter of when. Um, mm -hmm. I think it would be a lot easier as well if 
if once we've decided which factors are the most important that the that the sensors just feed that straight into the app so the farmer doesn't have to do any inputting the app just uh, grabs mm-hmm. all of grabs all of the important information and and produces a map and maybe even just sends the map straight to the machine so that there's a, um, very little inputting required from the farmer's perspective alan is right. that your vision no it isn't i'm afraid that i'm very conservative about the application of artificial intelligence. Okay, tell me more. I've been asked to review several proposals for the application of artificial intelligence to uh, precision agriculture. And my point in all of my reviews is that the importance and experience of agronomists is absolutely critical to any field scale analysis. Take, for example, one of my collaborators was looking at his yield maps and he identified a spot that was was low yielding. And he thought, well, this must be one of these factors that we just discussed, whether it was soil moisture or perhaps uh, management of nitrogen fertilizer. Well, it turns out it was plant disease, a pretty significant plant disease in canola that he identified there. It hadn't been identified in the surrounding area. So he was able to adapt his management to reduce the impact of that disease in his field. Agriculture and agronomy are very complex areas when you consider the impact of not only temperature, precipitation, fertilizer management, but also plant disease, pest disease, uh, weeds, all of those factors have to be included. And I don't think that artificial intelligence will be able to integrate all of that information for for some time. And I realize that there's chat GPT-4 and all of these AI uh, programs like Bing, that are available and they work with vast data sets. We don't have those vast data sets that include those pests, those plant diseases in addition to precipitation, temperature, uh, topography, nutrient management, to train those AI systems. I'm very conservative about the short-term application of AI that said what we're talking about in terms of the model and this app is 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 something where a producer can take the the information that we've developed and the algorithms that we've developed and just move a slider back and forth and say well okay let's move the slider over to high precipitation and see what happens in terms of nitrogen and phosphorus use in this particular field and the consequences for canola production in the high, low and average yield zones. That's the first step. As time progresses, more and more information can be added to the app with respect to pest control, weed control um, and disease control. Alan, thanks for putting in a plug there for agronomists and, and certainly today, this year and for the foreseeable future, having that uh, those sets of eyes in a field and that that second opinion can be incredibly valuable. And, and you're saying um, for the foreseeable future, even with AI decision making, that ground truthing will be a pretty essential 
part of the process. I want to close, guys, because we're we're at the end of our time. Just each of you, um, a message for farmers today who are looking at uh, managing variability on their farms. What would you, what would you say to someone who hasn't hasn't taken that plunge yet? Where, where do they begin? Collect as much data as you can, as much as historical and background data as you can in terms of uh, soil, uh, in terms of uh, historical um, crop yields, um, and uh, and and that type of information. It's a it's a multi-step, multi-year um, pro- process, I would say, to um, to say yes or no if the variable rate is for you or not. Okay. Right. Don't make the decision based on yeah one year, one year of results. Give it some time. Yeah. Exactly. Alan. Start with the yield maps. Start collecting that yield data. Looking look at the yield zones. We work with three zones. But that doesn't mean you couldn't have more zones or fewer zones. You could just have a high and a low production zone. Collect that data over time. Get a good measure of the variability across the fields in terms of yield. And then start breaking it down in terms of factors that could affect that yield. And there could be other factors, some of which we haven't discussed, such as soil salinity. There are also some other factors to consider, and that's the input of your local agronomists in terms of looking at that variability and figuring out where that variability is coming from. I, I know I've mentioned this already, but it's they are the key, and they have access to to software in, in likes SMS or FarmWorks. Uh, they also have access, some have access to sensors which can measure conductivity in the soil, and the sensors measure other soil properties, and, and that combination of information can help producers determine what's influencing yield in that particular part of the field, whether it's high producing or low producing part of the field, and adapt their management accordingly. Things can change year to year, but what what the long-term yield map will show are areas that typically yield higher, areas that typically yield lower, so that your your input decisions then are based on known probabilities. So yes, yes, it's still not a certainty, but you're coming into each year a lot smarter than you would be if you were if you didn't have that that long-term data. Exactly. So there are two factors here. One is understanding what's happening in the field, but the other is having a map, an actual map of these zones, which you can use to you to program your variable rate fertilizer management. And that's that's the other key component of precision agriculture is having those maps and having the understanding in addition to having the understanding. Taras Lychuk is a research scientist in precision agriculture and crop systems at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Brandon, Manitoba. Alan Moulin is a retired soil scientist who also worked at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Brandon. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. 
If you want more on AI and its potential to address field variability, read my article, AI for Data Analysis, at countryguide.ca. And there's a hyphen between country and guide. The two university researchers I interviewed expect AI to synthesize data and build maps automatically, but not today. They share Alan Moulin's reservations about AI's true intelligence when it comes to spotting disease patches and other unexpected factors. We will need agronomists for the short, and probably medium, term. Canola Watch is an agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada with support from the three prairies-based canola grower organizations, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. At the core of Canola Watch is a timely agronomy email with regular updates on insects, diseases, fertilizer deficiencies, storage risks, and other topics. If you are not already subscribed, please sign up at canolawatch.org. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.